welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to the Addiction Connection. And uh, I feel like we're veterans now, having done two two of these podcasts, uh, episodes 00 and 01. Last week was a little bit more serious uh, because we did very quickly a podcast on the coronavirus outbreak and uh, watching for the patients with addiction in the hospital. So you may want to go back and listen to that one. Today we're going to talk more about uh, the disease of addiction. So drug addiction. What is it characterized by? Loss of control, use despite adverse consequences, negative emotional state with abstinence. And of course, uh, I think in the past, you know, addiction's always been kind of traditionally seen as, as a choice, if you will. And I think that's one of the things we're really trying to get away from. I, there's pretty good research that shows that, uh, you know, that we get these brain changes uh, that cause really a lot of behavioral disruption uh, with frequent drug use. So I think it's important to understand that we look at this as more of a disease. These drugs may affect many of the neuronal circuitry, which uh, which involve a lot of the different things, including processing responses to reward, uh, motivating particular behavioral activities or actions. Uh, and, of course, it's linked a lot with the, this negative emotion and, and interoception and um, really poor decision-making and cognitive control issues. So really, in, in the end, you know, it's this... Uh, it's this all of these things combining to really turn drug use into kind of a compulsive uh, behavior disorder. Meaning that they can't necessarily control what they're doing? That's Kirk? exactly what I'm trying to say, Heather. All right. So taking all of that, it ends up being a chronic relapsing disease. Again, all these things kind of play together in the brain. So then it, it, it things can be going well, and then there will be these little lapses or sometimes bigger relapses, but it's not necessarily that choice, and that's what people need to, to kind of think about. There's a lot more info regarding what makes us more vulnerable. So there's this whole idea that it's a biopsychosocial illness. Bio meaning things like your genetics. Parts of your genetics just predispose you. Um, psychologically, are there developmental things in your past? Were you into a lot of emotional traumas in your past? Um, Socially, what's your environment? I mean, if you're around a lot of uh, drug use in your life, that ends up being your norm, the environment that you're around. So all of these things kind of play together to make this whole treatment approach coming from a lot of different areas. Um, and then being able to treat those and being able to approach things from this biopsychosocial model um, can really help pinpoint the exact part of a certain patient or person um, their characteristics and which kind of led to that point. So let's talk addiction and how it's been characterized, kind of a cycle of, uh, of three different stages and, and really linking these three domains kind of, of, of neurocircuitry. That sounded very fancy. I, I think every time I say neurocircuitry, I sound a little smarter. Um, and really, if we look at stage one, boy, that's easy for me to say, uh, we're looking at binge intoxication uh, versus you know, via that whole basal ganglia. Basically, what, what gives you that high or that reward? Uh, and I think the second being withdrawal and that negative effects, that's more the amygdala and the habanula. Uh, you said it right that time. First time for everything. I'm always thinking habanero. 
but uh, I'll go with Habanula. Uh, and, and of course, that's really characterized by this recruitment of this brain stress uh, symptoms, this negative emotional state, this dysphoria and, and irritability. Uh, and lastly, we talk a little bit about the third stage, that preoccupation, that anticipation state that uh, really is from that prefrontal cortex, that that loss of control and that drug craving that I think really uh, drives this disease. And Maybe you should uh, divert a little bit, Kurt, and explain to, to people how you remember that habanula, habanero, that negative impact. Well, every time I've ever eaten a habanero, it's been a very negative impact on my, <laughs> on my life. Ketchup uh, is spicy. Yeah, ketchup. <laughs> so if you look at addiction and look at imaging studies and you look at the brain, there are sometimes different abnormalities. But not all people with addiction do have this same degree. And not everybody with addiction has different brain changes if you're doing imaging things. So it really kind of points to that whole, again, that interaction between the genetics and the environment and psychological things. There's also that whole other element that we'll talk about in a future podcast, this epigenetics. So the inheritability of stress or trauma um, or reaction to different situations. And we'll get there as a, at a point down the road. But then if you're looking at it as a developmental disorder, so this is that whole psychological going back, you know, really a lot of what addiction looks like is this normal adolescent behavior. As we all know, the whole beginning part of the brain, this prefrontal cortex, I like to call that the adulting part of the brain, as this is the executive function of the brain. This is the part of your brain that tells you not to do certain things. Whereas if you remember being an adolescent, so anything prior to the age 25, you don't really have that ability to think through things such as an adult necessarily would. You have risk-taking, novelty-seeking, more sensitive to peer pressure. And so there's really no coincidence that a lot of that high drug use is used prior to age 25. Oh, I, I was just going to ask you when that finally changes. Not that I've, it's it's for a friend I was going to ask you. For a friend, yeah. Um, you know, and, and there is some studies out there that shouldn't surprise many that females prefrontal cortex adulting tends to develop a little sooner than males. <laughs> I, I don't know if you have any opinions on that, Kurt, but... <laughs> So if you're if you're having drug exposure during these developing times during this this sensitive time of these adolescent years that could then result in different ways the brain is forming which then potentially later in life can cause uh, more significant difficulties with substance use later so alcohol during that time marijuana use during that time they've been shown to increase the use of these substances or addiction issues beyond that time well, I was going to hit I was going to hit the cricket button there, but then something made noise. So, let's talk a little bit about some of the neurologic kind of pearls, if you will, some of the things that kind of demonstrate uh addiction, some of the different things the progression and the rituals that are kind of involved. And I think if you look for instance with people who are cocaine uh, uh patients who are addicted to cocaine and uh they have this blunted dopamine response to cocaine in in their striatum and and that, of course, is in the nucleus accumbens. And they, they have a much more blunted response to the cocaine after a while compared to controls. And it's really interesting that if you, if you take these same patients uh, and, you, and you, res you expose them to cues, for instance, uh, different drug conditions, they will actually have a much higher burst of the dopamine than they do from actually using the drug. And it's really interesting how that, uh, 
how e- these cues can be very much uh, what kind of drive that that addiction. I think of people who are taking care of patients with use disorders will often hear that, or if you're discussing this with a person who has this history, sometimes just that that ritual of getting to use is actually a better rush than the actual drug itself. Yeah, and actually it's it's interesting because people will say, well, why don't some of the things that naturally uh, excite us, why don't those, why don't we get addicted to those? And in fact, if you look at the, the uh, changes in the, do- in the dopamine, they're actually five to tenfold less uh, for those things than we see with a lot of different uh, substances, including uh, especially methamphetamine. I think where people need to think about how addiction then continues to develop, and, and this is, I think, where society thinks that people are always looking for this high, looking for this high. But a lot of times by the time we see patients or um, even beyond the first couple of weeks, most patients will say they're no longer even getting high from these substances. They've kind of transitioned from this getting high, rewarding experience to this compulsive I'm using to not feel sick. And this is that, again, negative reinforcement place. So rather than using to get that high, when you don't have that drug there, you're just in this blah, this, this you know, anhedonic state. You might be sick for the first few days with withdrawal. So patients will often chase the drug to get out of this state. So they're ending up using to just feel normal. And I think that's a, it's a hard concept to really, to really grasp. And so in these patients at baseline, their dopamine levels are so low, their GABA is so low that just using the drug gets them back to that normal level. And this, if you're really wanting to know the, the brain areas, it's, this is that HPA access, um, if you're wanting to look that up. So this is that um, also then develops into that whole prefrontal cortex thing I already mentioned with the adulting and that poor executive function. So this is where, you know, you see the people on TV or you, you see the people who have used in front of their kids and you think, oh, my goodness, how could they do that? Well, they have this brain damage in that area that tells them to not do that. That adult part of their brain isn't there. Um, and this is the chronic long-term use. Now, the good news is, is that can come back with time. Um, that adulting part, if you will, that prefrontal cortex, that executive function, after about 90 days of sobriety or not using that substance, that can come back. Um, but it's really this imbalance between reward and then that negative anhedonic feeling that drives this ritualistic behavior. So I think what we'll do for just a moment is we'll kind of move a little bit to that, you know, what is those vulner- what are those things that give people that vulnerability to, uh, to become uh, kind of controlled by these different substances. And in fact, if you look at the genetics, 40, it's kind of estimated that roughly 40 to 60% of, of what drives addiction is actually genetic factors. And I think if you look at some, some different things uh, uh, surrounding that, even alcohol use disorder, you know, you have a seven times higher risk of having alcohol use disorder if your parents both have that. So it's really, it's interesting. And in fact, there's other things that will actually give you some protection from alcohol uh, use disorders. There's certain polymorphisms of the uh, alcohol uh, dehydrogenase uh, that that can actually make you more protected from alcohol. And there's actually similar issues, uh, you know, with smoking with P450, where there are certain people that actually have less issues with nicotine than other patients. So I think the genes can really go either way for you, uh, either giving you a higher risk of use disorders, and sometimes it can be protective. 
I think in science currently right now, whether it's for medications or for things like this, there is a lot of research out there about um, testing people for these different genes, which may be either beneficial to find certain medications to help or to maybe get these gene testing to see if they are um, at higher risks, like people can make more educated decisions. Um, And not only do you have some genetic predispositions, there's a lot of things in the environment that can can kind of make you more vulnerable. Um, It's been shown that people who come from lower socioeconomical standing, they have poor parental support, um, have a little bit more risk within their peer group, if there's a lot of deviancy in the peer group or a lot of use in the peer group, because, again, that's that whole environmental exposure, um, can definitely increase the risk. And then, of course, if drug is there, if, if the substances are in front of you and, and present, you're much more likely to end up using them. And, of course, when we look at mental illness, I mean, I think everybody's very aware that uh, comorbidity of uh, substance use disorders and mental illness is a, I mean, these things are very well uh, documented how how much they collide. And, uh, you know, I have that increased comorbidity uh, probably uh, reflects somewhat that overlapping environmental, some of the genetic and neurobiology uh, things that we've just discussed. And and these are things I think we're going to have future talks on. Uh, I think you can do an entire hour on comorbidities of of uh, using uh, substances. We're not going to have to listen to you for a whole hour, are we? Well, we're hopeful that I can last that long. <laughs> So I just want to quick summarize, you know, when you're taking addiction, there is this, like we mentioned, biological, psychological, social, environmental things all go into a person. And then for whatever reason, in some people, there's this switch that happens in their brain that can then uh, lead to addictions. All those factors playing in are all things that can then be modified to help with treatment. And then all those things can also um, trigger people to go back to using, to lapse or to relapse. And so these are just definitely things to keep in mind, that there's so many things that factor into a person becoming addicted. But then ultimately, it can be this relapsing thing where they're using to not be sick rather than to get this rewarding high such that much of society believes. Yeah, and I think it's important as we as we go on to future podcasts that we uh, really understand addiction is as a disease, I think uh, often it's easy to kind of flip back and, and into some of the old terms and uh, even even some of the words that we use to uh, describe some of these situations can be really important, especially when we when we're meeting with patients and uh, and their families. Wonderful. So we will be back next week. But as always, every one of these wonderful podcasts are unedited and raw. Um, Again, I hope you enjoyed it. I suspect I made a mistake or two, but we're going to live with it. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.